love-hate relationship with preaching. I hate it in many ways because I just don't think it's a... It, it's my go-to gift. It takes me ages to prepare a talk. Unlike Mark, who I think kind of just... I'm sure he prepares one on the way in sometimes. Um, but I also love it because the scripture comes alive. But, but if I get those compliments every single time I do this, I might, I might do this more often, to be fair. Um, okay. Um, who was here for Mark's talk or heard Mark's talk last week? Oh, it was so good, wasn't it? I mean, it was just amazing. What was it? It was uh, God's tender, great, undeserved, healing, abounding, unfailing, and everlasting mercy. He does love his points. Um, but, it, I mean, it was just an amazing talk and really worth checking out as we begin this new series on mercy. So do um, check that out if you missed it. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm continuing that uh, this week as we look, um, uh, we take an extra step further looking at mercy. But um, before I start, who wants to hear a joke? Yeah, no one does. Of course no one does. But, uh, but just in case you want to increase your repertoire, there is a purpose for this joke. Um, but let me just tell you. I was, uh, I was out shopping yesterday. We were going for Mother's Day stuff. And um, I was walking down uh, the supermarket, supermarket aisle, and I saw this guy with milk, and he was just throwing it all over the floor. And then, and then he was grabbing the button. He was just throwing that all over the floor. And he was making such a horrible mess. And do you know what? I thought to myself, how dare he? I'll just give you a couple of seconds just to figure that out if you didn't get it. And then realize how disappointing the joke is. My, my eight-year-old told me that joke when we were walking in town. And I literally, I cracked up. I laughed out loud. It was such a surprise. And she tells me all the best jokes. Um, the reason why I tell you is not because I'm trying to entertain you and win you over with my wonderful sense of humor, which Trevor didn't mention, by the way. Um, but no, after that, it's definitely not going to come back with that. That is not going to go in the compliments section for the stars. But the reason why I tell you that is because, and I've said this before, when I was, in the, uh, when I was at school in the sixth form, uh, we uh, finished off uh, the school year with these award ceremony. Um, you may I've, I've said this before, but I remember in that ceremony, you know, people got a kind of best dressed award, most fashionable, most likely to succeed. I got the award, the least funniest person in school. <laughs> it hasn't changed much, has it? But joking aside, that really got to me. I didn't realize it. I kind of laughed it off, but was hurt. But I kind of thought, okay, we'll get on with this. But I reflect on that sometimes. And I think that actually got me for quite a few years. I'm over it now, hence the reason why I can tell these brilliant jokes. Um, but it really got me. It started to really eat away at me. And you know what? would eventually, you know, what would eventually, start with me going, you know, don't say that because, you know, you can hear the class laughing, you can hear those comments, eventually became this self-talk. And you may have this, but, you know, where I'd go around and, and someone would say something and I'd go, oh, and I'd pause before I say something and go, don't say that, you're not funny. You're not, you're not engaged. And no one really wants to hear you talk. And it would start this self-talk that would just eat away at me and just, just, you know, hold me back. And so I'd end up being really quiet in a lot of circumstances because the self-talk ended up taking over. You know, it's really weird, isn't it? Because, you know, if someone around us makes a mistake or they, uh, they say something wrong or they fail or whatever it is, there's a part of us that is somewhat patient with them. We go, it's okay, don't worry, we'll try again. Hey, I'm with you, it's fine. But boy, when you make a mistake... I mean, how many can resonate with, uh, oh, you're 
so stupid. What an idiot. I mean, oh, you, know, they know, you know that they like that person better than you anyway. And all these things start to resonate in your mind. And you, I mean, if people could hear how you talk about yourself when you make a mistake, it would be horrendous. We all have that voice in the head when we mess up, right? Or is it just me? I'm just starting to think it's just me. Um, but if you're, if you're smart, you've probably spent some time tracing that back to someone or people or someone in your life that you can almost hear their voice. And it does beg the question, who have you given permission in your life to judge you? Who have you given permission to speak to you? Who have you given permission to give a commentary on all your misdeeds? Oh, why did you do that? You, know, you should know better than that. It's that person we, we want their approval from. We, you know, perhaps they're hard to please. Perhaps we just look so highly to them that when they're good, when they're looking at us with favor, when they're happy with us, oh, we feel great. But when they're disappointed, when they're upset, when they haven't got any time for us, when they're maybe angry, frustrated, you know, we suddenly feel unsettled. And we feel down and we feel like life isn't right anymore. Maybe it started when we were younger. Maybe we wanted their approval. So what did we do? What was the outcome of this when what happened as a kid? And I see it with my kids sometimes. I don't think I'm massively disapproving, but I can see it in them already. We learn to hide our mistakes. We learn to lie. To say, I'm fine. It's okay. No, no, I've got this under control. I meant to do that. How many times have you tripped? I'm going, yep, that was on purpose. How many times have you made a mistake going, I was just testing you? You know, we've all been there in that place. And, you know, as we've grown up and we've seen the world and we realize that actually, you know, in, whether it's in the playground or whether it's a, a work or just in a friendship group, we start to realize it's quite a competitive world out there. Society looks at you and says, do you have what it takes to keep up? Are you as whatever that is? Because if not, then, frankly, we'll just ignore you and we'll focus on those who really could be somebody. And so what happens? We learn to behave. But mostly what happens is we learn to hide our faults, our mistakes, our sin. For as long as we don't get caught, it's okay. For as long as no one catches us out, for as long as no one can judge us and make that realization who we are, then it's okay. But one thing leads to another, and before you know it, you're way out of your depth, and there's no way back. It becomes like playing a massive game of tag, but no matter how hard you look, there's no home. And it's only a matter of time before you get caught. And it's that tension, that stress. And that's what happened one, to one particular woman in the Bible. And it was not pleasant. And we're going to turn to John 8. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you've got your phones with you, you're going to turn to John 8. I'll always have the scripture up on screen, but it's worth looking at it in your own Bible so you know I'm not making this up as I go along. And so you can follow the story. And this was totally not intentional to do on a Mother's Day. This is unrelated to that, okay? But we're going to go with this. Okay, let me start. At dawn, he, Jesus, verse 2, sorry, appeared again at the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now twice it says the word caught. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why it emphasizes caught. Uh, you see, the Jewish law was very protecting of wrong judgment. 
An adulterer could not be charged unless two eyewitnesses saw them doing it. And I mean doing it. You know, not coming out of a room with smeared lipstick, not in a compromising position, not laying in a bed with somebody, but actually doing it, actually in the act. And this woman was caught. For this woman to be caught in the act, um, you can read commentaries and the likes, but it is assumed, we can assume that this wasn't happenstance. This was likely that she was set up. This was a trap. She had been entrapped. People knew of her misdeeds. They knew of her weaknesses. But there was no intention of helping her. There was no intention of challenging her. They were just lying in wait. You know, let's just pause for a second and just catch ourselves and make sure we're not naive. People know our faults. Anyone who spent any time with us know our temptations. And anyone who has ever lived with you knows you're not so secret sin. That's a painful thought, isn't it? More people than you realize know what's going on. And do you know what to make this worse is the more you step up, the more you go, do you know, I'm going to try something good. The more you step out into the public eye, the more you became, become known or, you know, make a, have a voice, the more people want to tear you down. The more critics, the more haters that you get, the more people who want to see you fail. Oh, they would love to see you fail. They would delight in an opportunity to catch you out. They would love to see you fail because they would look good. If you make that mistake, if everyone suddenly found out who you really were, oh, they would look fantastic. You know, as it says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around, roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour. And you're at worse not just fail, but oh, to be humiliated in the process. And that's exactly what's happened to this woman. You see, she was dragged out, caught in the act. In other words, she did not have time to get dressed. She probably grabbed the very blanket she was caught on, wrapped it round her for some kind of covering, then made her stand in front of a crowd of people. Some of them she probably knew. Some of them knew her. And then if that wasn't enough, that very famed rabbi, that great holy man, the teacher himself, was standing there, Jesus himself. Oh, this is shame. This is embarrassment. This is her worst fear realized, uncovered and humiliated for everyone to see. She was made to stand in front of Jesus and then it's then we're discovered why she was caught. It goes on in verse 4. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. You see, in the law, the law has, Moses commanded us to stone such women, to kill them, to execute them. Now, what do you say? And it goes on to say, they were using this question as a trap in order to have the basis for accusing him, Jesus. You see, this is not just a trap for the woman. This is not just a trap for the sinner. This is a trap for Jesus too. Jesus is being, not being asked whether she's guilty or not because that is certain, that is clear. He's being asked about the punishment that she deserves. You see, these teachers point to the law specifically. They pointed to Leviticus 20, 2010 and Deuteronomy 22, 22. They point out to the very fact that the Mosaic law says adultery is punishable by execution. And to be fair, this is quite an amazing trap. 
This is a well-thought-out, well-considered, well-planned and well-executed trap. One of the best. Because they know that Jesus is stuck. I mean, he's stuck between two very important issues. One of them, on one hand, is the life of the woman. And on the other hand, the divine law of Moses. See, Jesus was well known for being compassionate, for healing, for caring, for looking after those that no one else wanted to. So surely he is loving and he is forgiven and he is good. But at the same time, Jesus is a teacher of the law. He says, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, no, jo- no uh, jot or tittle will pass away until all the law is fulfilled. The question is, in this circumstance, could he be both? Could he do both? Could he be justice and compassion? Can he be truth and grace? Can he be both judge and redeemer? That's what they, that's what we want to know. Oh, how wonderful the teachers of the law would have felt in this very moment. We've got him. We've absolutely got him. We've nailed him. There's no way he can get out of this. Let's pause for a moment and just think, how would that woman have felt in that moment? Did she, behind her tears and her shame, still cling into that last remaining dignity that the blanket gave her, feel too far gone? I mean, surely this great man of God had his hands tied. I mean, yes, he can heal. Yes, he can deliver. He's proved that. He's shown that. He's shown the kindness, the love, the grace. And he could probably, probably set her free to deliver. But look at her. What can anyone do? after what she has done. I mean, she has gone too far. She has done too much. She's been caught. She deserves punishment. Surely, she's too far gone. Equally, she can't exactly say it wasn't her fault or she's a victim in this. The woman had been struggling, may have been struggling with the decision, but whatever the circumstances, she still made a choice. And as she stands before Jesus and the crowd and the teachers of the law, she knows there's no excuse or escape She has been caught in the act. There is no way out. Jesus surely doesn't have a choice in this moment. I mean, maybe, maybe if he'd gotten to know her, he would have loved her. Maybe if he'd had a chance to spend time with her, he would have been able to help her. But now she's too far messed up. I wonder if she had thought about going to him sooner. Before all of this happened, when she was struggling with temptation, when she was in that place, I wonder if she thought it to herself, do you know what, I, I know he'll accept me, I know he'll love me, but do you know what, before I go to him, I, I need to get a handle on this stuff. Do you know, I'll get myself sorted and then I'll go to him and then he'll accept me. If I can just grab hold of this, if I can just get this under control, then maybe he'll accept me. But now, it's too late. It's out in the open and there's no chance he can do something Surely it's too late. Do you know, fear is a faith crusher. Fear is a faith crusher. Fear stops us, stops you, stops me going to Jesus. It stops us being real and authentic. It stops us from believing God's promises for freedom, for hope, for a better future. We say to ourselves so quickly, if he really knew, then surely he wouldn't accept me. Fear crushes our faith. But you know, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. God hasn't given us a spirit. His spirit gives us power, love, and of self-discipline. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The very means that she needs to overcome this challenge were found in Jesus. If only she knew that promise 
If only she had heard that promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now our problem when we read that verse, maybe this is just me, maybe I've been caught in this, but maybe it's you as well, is that often we read that verse and we say, okay, if you feel bad enough, and if you promise to try harder next time and try not to do that ever again, God is good and he forgives. It's easy to misread that, but the message that he's trying to say in that verse is he is faithful. You see, our faith is not placed in our ability to be good enough or to feel bad enough. Our faith is placed in his faithfulness. It's that faith that would have saved her from this situation. But is it enough to rescue her from this moment? You know, fortunately, she's about to find out that even in her desperation, even when she's convinced it's too late, even with the smallest amount of faith, that faith is a fear crusher too. You see, the woman looks trapped. Jesus looks trapped. The teachers of the laws look like they have won. Verse 6, but Jesus. I love those two words. But Jesus. Everyone say that. But Jesus. Oh, if every time we would catch those negative thoughts, if every time we would catch us in ourselves and our trap, we would say, but Jesus. We may not necessarily know the rest of the story. We may not necessarily know what comes next. But Jesus. Surely Jesus. But Jesus. What's hilarious about this is this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's it. (laughs) He bent down and started to write on the ground of his finger. Do you know what that says to me? That says to me in that very moment, with all this shame, with all this embarrassment, with all this pressure, Jesus' reaction is not one of, oh my gosh, this is horrendous. Oh my word, this is out of control. Oh, cover my eyes, this is disgusting. Jesus is never shocked by our sin. Jesus is never shocked There's no divine shock moment where all of heaven gasps, you did that? Oh, that's too much. For God, sin is sin, whatever it is. You know, the same way, Jesus is never stumped by a question. He knows everything, absolutely everything. He created all things. He created the very innermost working of your mind. He created the very far-flung secrets of the universe. Everything in his, in his thoughts. Nothing is new. Nothing is going to surprise him. Nothing is going to outwit him. There has ne- never been a day that's gone by where Jesus says, has thought, oh, I didn't think of that. Never has been a day when he says, oh, do you know what? Let me think about that one because I have no idea what the answer to that question is. He can't know. Uh, he can't not know something. He cannot not foresee a question. So when they start gloating, when they start shoving it in his face, when they say, we've got her, she's trapped. What are you going to do now, Jesus? She's hopeless. You're stuck. You're hopeless. There is no way out. When they got excited, when they thought they had won, Jesus gives them a moment. He says, okay, I'll just leave you to it. I'm just going to doodle on the ground for a little bit. I'm just going to let you relax. I'm going to let you have this moment. I'm going to let you enjoy it. Oh, they excitedly talk among themselves. Oh, if he says, doesn't stone her, if, hey, if he says, don't stone her, do you know what that means? That means that the law doesn't count and we got him, we've nailed him. And do you know what? If he says that we should stone her, 
No one's going to believe he's trustworthy, he's kind, he's good, he's forgiven. He is trapped. We've got him. We have got him. Oh, man. We can know the word of God inside out, and yet we can still fail to know the author of that very word. Oh, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know his very heart, his very spirit behind the very word that he wrote. We need to know that he has all of the power, all of the authority, all of the wisdom. He is not overwhelmed by the situation in the slightest. But his silence, his fall, we know doodling on the ground, the scripture doesn't give us any more. We can speculate, we can think, but we just don't know if he was doing anything more than doodling. He gave them time to make them think that they had got him. He acted like he didn't hear. In short way of saying it, he was ignoring them. He was basically going, fine, just have this moment. I'm just ignoring you. They keep on persisting. They keep on pushing them. He carries on doodling like it's break time. Do you know, some of us, unfortunately, are very quick to react in these moments. Oh, when we're caught, we're very quick to give the best response. Um, we give the best reaction that we have rather than respond and pause. We want to justify ourselves. We want to give an answer. We want to give an excuse. We want to give a justification, an explanation for what has just happened. We so quickly fire, oh, yeah, I meant to do it. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, you know, yeah, it's absolutely right, yeah, blah, 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 but, you know, you don't understand. So, oh, we want to react in that moment. But you know what? Jesus doesn't react. He doesn't give a knee-jerk reaction. He invites us to consider, to respond to be considerate about it, to deliberate, to be thoughtful, to have an intentional delay and to think before we respond. We need to know, no matter what happens, no matter what we've done, that Jesus never reacts. He responds. He never reacts to your sin. He never looks at that moment and goes, I'm watching you, I'm watching you. Oh, I can't believe you've done that. He never reacts to your mistakes. He responds with wisdom, with love. He never lashes out. He never flinches. He never loses it. As Nehemiah said once while remembering all of Israel's history, and there's plenty of mistakes there to be made. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. If that was our go-to verse every single time we made a mistake, every single time we messed up, we would not react. We would respond just as Jesus responds. You know, the woman in this moment did not realize it, but she actually was faced with an incredible divine choice, the same choice that you and I have every single day. We can take what is sinful, what is shameful, and what is painful, and we have one of two places that we can leave it. We can take it and pick it up, and we can take it, to the book, or we can take it to the cross. We have that choice in every single moment. Do we take it to the teachers of the law and the law itself with our very best efforts? Do we have the, come to it and go, okay, I've got all my best intentions. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be, I won't do that again. I'm not going to mess up. You know, I, that was my last time I failed. Or do we turn to Jesus and cry out, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Help me. I've done wrong and I need your mercy. 
Do we go to the law and face our accusers, or do we go to the cross where we will find mercy at the foot of our Savior? The one without sin, the one without corruption, the one who knows what it is to be tempted but has never sinned. The one who is for us and not against us, and I love this passage in Colossians 2, that when we were dead, we were made alive with Jesus Christ. The one who forgave us all of our sins and having canceled the charge which stood against us and condemned us, by, took it away, nailing it to the cross. And the one who disarmed the very powers and authorities made a public spectacle over them, triumphing them over, over them by the cross. They were gloating. Oh, they were proud of themselves. They were ready to stone the woman, but they had literally no idea what was going to happen next. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And Jesus makes his case in front of everyone. He says, Effectively, he's saying, look, you're disqualified from being witnesses and executioners. I know why you're disqualified. And we often go to the fact that we think, oh, well, you know, if anyone was without sin, as if anyone has sin, they can't do this. But, you know, justice would be ridiculous if we all thought, well, no, we can't perform justice unless we were all perfect. No, Jesus is being very specific here. He's reminding these teachers of the law of the circumstances and the very law they were invoking. And the law painstakingly argues against conspiracy and partiality. Oh, the law is perfect. Oh, it really is perfect. And but by them turning to it and using it, they find themselves trapped by it instead. Oh, they caught the woman in the very act of adultery. But in order to catch her, they would have had to catch the man Two. How many of us know that? There has to be two involved in this, this action, should we say, this moment. And to be caught, there needed to be two. So what happened to the man? You know, the chances are that the man was probably involved in this trap. He was part of the reason why they knew where to catch her and how to catch her and when to catch her and what circumstance and the very moment to walk in and be in this situation. Maybe they bought him like they bought Judas, whereas he sold out Jesus. Maybe he had served their purpose and he's like, fine, just get out of here. We've got the women now. We've got all we need. Either way, he was missing from this act of justice. Uh, but the law is clear. Both of them needed to be punished. You see, they were lying in wait for this woman and they dragged her out. Instead of having a trial, they stand her publicly dishonored and ashamed. Conspiracy and partiality against the poor, against women, against anyone was unacceptable in God's eyes and was, um, was a sin. Any partiality, any injustice, even with the, sort of the seeking of justice, is unacceptable. Justice is crucial, but so is compassion. There is no justice without compassion. And as a result... Uh, of being one without the other, they were trapped by the very law they had tried to trap Jesus with. You know, Jesus' reply is, look, I, I don't deny the law. The law is perfect. I'm going to fulfill it to the very core. But by the law of Moses, I'm telling you that you're not qualified. No one is qualified 
to be witnesses or executioners except me. You have sinned, and if you punish this woman, it stands to reason that you too will need to be punished for your, your impartiality. At this, verse 9, those who began, heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, only, until only Jesus was left, and the woman was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Do you know I heard someone recently say this wonderful phrase, when you put your faith in the mercy of Jesus and the power of the cross, you call that day your dependence day. Your dependence day. I love that. I love that phrase. The day you give up trying to be your own savior. The day you give up trying to be your own judge. The day you depend on Christ alone. When everyone else is gone, when you have ignored the voices, when you've said everyone else Go away, I'm focusing on Jesus in this matter. To depend only on him, only on his faithfulness, is a day to celebrate. It's the day when the voices have no power over you. And one by one, they fade away. That self-talk fades away until only Christ remains. That's your dependence day. For those who have made that their dependence day and haven't yet been baptized, we get to celebrate on Easter Sunday with them as they have started their dependence day. But you know, now God has disturbed the comfortable. He now goes on to dis- comfort the disturbed. The woman stands there in disbelief. Could the band come back up? No one has condemned me, but she still doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond. Yes, all those voices have faded, but she still looks at Jesus and says, I have no idea how you're going to respond. Will he scold her? Will he punish her? Will he deny her? Will he condemn her? But you know, God didn't send a condemner into the world. He sent a savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. In a short time, she will fully understand that he doesn't condemn her because he will be condemned for her. Those stones that were meant for her will hit him. The spears that should have been thrown at her will pierce his side. The thorns that should have torn her apart will come crushing down on his head. She is free because he will take her place. And as John says at the very beginning of his book, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, she has the mercy and the means to stop sinning. Notice it says, go now. You are free. There is no condemnation. Because of that, you have the means, the power to stop sinning. You are free to stop hiding. You no longer have to be afraid. You no longer have to listen to those voices. For he is faithful and true. He is justice and compassion. He is love and mercy. He is our God. And he loves us. And we're going to stand up and we're going to worship him because we have a God of mercy. Let's stand. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be guided and judged by those voices that are in our head. We thank you that we don't have to remain in hiding. But today, Jesus Christ, you don't react 
that you respond with kindness and compassion, slow to anger and abounding in love. Today is our dependence day where we turn to you. Today is a day where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, we have discovered that God of mercy. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.